following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Amen. Well, the use of irony can be an extremely effective tool for communication. In fact, the great orator Cicero, he defined irony as, as saying one thing and meaning another. It's that statement or that situation that, that on the surface has one idea, one understanding, but, but there's really another meaning underneath, something below the surface. Like when, when somebody uh, is trying to explain something to you and it's not real obvious, you don't understand, and you tell them, you know, that was as clear as mud, right? Mud isn't clear, right? Or when somebody does something that causes damage or disruption, or, and you say, well, that was helpful, right? That's not exactly what you mean, right? It wasn't helpful. As Cicero said, you're, you're saying one thing, but you're meaning another. And those examples are examples of verbal irony. There's another kind of irony called situational irony. And that is where the circumstances or the situation is, is different than what you would expect. Like a dentist with bad teeth. Or you go over to a house, a guy that's a plumber, and he's got leaky faucets. And this week I found a number of situational ironies that uh, I thought you would enjoy, and so I, I would, wanted to share them with you. Uh, there's uh, several of them I wanted to show. And the first irony is there's nothing there. Um, <laughs> let's see, let me try again. All right. Uh, this is an announcement of a psychic event that was canceled. And I know it's a little bit hard to read, but you see the reason that it was canceled? Unforeseen circumstances. (laughs) Then there's this guy. It's a good sign, important sign that he's putting up there, but uh, I wonder if OSHA knows about this one. Um, You know, Spalding came out with a new football. Uh, It's supposed to be a really good one. It's called the Never Flat Football. I thought it was funny. Come on. And uh, here's another place. Don't buy your picture hooks at this store. (laughs) Now, this next one really is uh, ironic. Um, I don't know if you can read. This is a statue of Braveheart. Can you see the title at the bottom of the statue? Freedom! And he's in a cage! I thought that was... Rather funny. Now, this one, again, I'm sorry, it's a little hard to reach. It says accepting resumes uh, for this place of business. And it looks like her hand is pointing a certain direction. What's located in front of her there? Can you see it? A trash can, yeah. Please, give us your resumes. Okay, now this is a good one. I want you to do is look at, read the door first on this one. What's written on the door? National... Association of Telemarketers. Now look at the red sign. Absolutely no soliciting. <laughs> uh, if, you, if any of you are familiar with uh, George Orwell's book, 1984, you'll appreciate this one. Uh, here's a place, uh, you can't read the sign as well, but it says George Orwell lived here. <laughs> yes, George, big brother is watching. Like the camera sitting there in front. Now, now this next one is just cruel. 
Uh, I don't know if you can see on the floor there. It's a, a box that has something for back pain. <laughs> this poor guy, how's he going to get it? And, you know, have you ever gotten those packages where you get frustrated because you can't open them? Well, hey, this tool is for you. Yeah, trouble is they put it in a package you couldn't get to it very easily in. Um, some, uh, someone here misunderstood the meaning of drive-thru, I guess. <laughs> and then uh, there's one more I want to show you. This one's my favorite. I'll give you a minute. Look at this. You notice something here? Every word on this list is misspelled, but one. <laughs> I was cracking up on this one. You like this one, Jane? I thought this was a good one. Now, all of these are, these are examples of situational irony, that the circumstances are different than what you would expect. Uh, there's also another form of irony similar to situational irony. It's called dramatic irony. And that is found in literature or plays or movies. And, and that is where the character in the, in the play or the story says or does something, but the reader or the person watching it knows that the meaning or the outcome is going to be different than what the character expects. And the character doesn't know it or realize it. And that's why it's an ironic situation. It's kind of like the author of the story or the play is, is winking at the audience. Say, do, do you get this? Do you see what's really happening here? And I know that uh, you haven't come here this morning to get a, a lesson in literary technique or literary devices. But I, I bring up the topic of irony because it is important to what we are going to see in our story today in John 11. And what John has written to us. Because you may not realize that there's actually a lot of irony in the Bible. The Bible is full of irony. Probably one of the more well-known uh, dramatic ironies is in the book of Esther. That is where, if you remember the story, where this man Haman, who hated the Jews, and he wanted them to be destroyed, got the king to, to give an edict to wipe out the Jews. And the first Jew that he wanted to see dead was Mordecai. Haman hated him. And so Haman had these gallows built in order to have Mordecai hang upon them and die. But if you remember the story, the king saw Haman uh, looking like he was attacking Queen Esther. And so the king had sentenced Mordecai, or Haman to death. And guess where he had Haman killed? On those very same gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai very ironic circumstance that's an irony actually that's reflected in the proverbs proverbs 26 27 says he who digs a pit will fall into it and he who rolls a stone it will come back on him and the idea there being if if you plan to do harm against somebody else there's a god who's watching and be careful that will come back upon you now one of the masters of irony especially dramatic irony in the bible is the apostle john it is a book that is filled with much irony. There's many examples of it. One that comes to my mind in John 1 when, when Philip, he's excited and he comes to Nathaniel and says, uh, I found the Messiah. And actually, just a couple verses from that verse, it's really Jesus who found them. Or in John chapter 9, that's the story of the blind man, the blind from birth. He had physical blindness that Jesus healed. And as we go through the account, we realize the main focus of the story wasn't his physical blindness. It was the spiritual blindness of those around him. 
Another irony, one that is one of my favorite in the gospel is, you remember when Jesus was in the garden and the, the battalion of soldiers came up to him and their intent was to take him, right? And Jesus says, to, uh, whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene, <laughs> right? And then Jesus responds with, I am. And you remember what happened to those soldiers? The guys who thought they were in control, they hit the dirt. They all fell over. Just as a sign to us that we know who really is in control. One of John's wonderful ironies. Well, there's another irony that he gives in John chapter 11. In fact, I think it's uh, easily one of the greatest ironies in his entire gospel. And if you're not in John 11, please turn there with me. This irony comes upon the heels of one of the greatest, well-known, most well-known miracles in John's gospel. And this irony that we're going to see here reveals the very heart of why we are here and what we are celebrating today. The events of John 11, uh, they take place just a few short months before the crucifixion. Uh, Jesus was staying uh, somewhere near the Sea of Galilee, and as he was staying there, he receives a message, a message that one of his friends has become sick. Let's pick up the account in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. The sisters therefore sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. When therefore he had heard that he was sick, he stayed then two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now let's stop there. We find here that uh, Jesus receives word that Lazarus has taken ill. And he must have been pretty sick for uh, Lazarus's sisters to send Jesus a message. These siblings, uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, are well known throughout the Gospels. Uh, Jesus had a special affection for this family. If you notice twice in these first five verses, it says, uh, it talks about his affection for them, that he loved Lazarus, that he loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. In fact, several times when he had visited Jerusalem, we see in the Gospels he would stay in Bethany, most likely at their house. But he does this. Um, when he hears of Lazarus' sickness, though, if you notice, the response he gives is a rather peculiar one, isn't it? Because as they tell him, your friend Lazarus is sick, and then Jesus says, well, the sickness is not unto death, but, but just a few verses later, he's going to say Lazarus has died. And in addition to that, Jesus, rather than rush down to see him, he stays two more days. It's kind of odd, but we learn in verse 4 why he does these things. What does it say there? What was the reason for his delay? What was this event supposed to do? It's to show the glory of God, right? To glorify His Son, Jesus. And so we read in verse 4 about that purpose, but also we see in verse 5, it's a reminder to us that all that's going to happen is also for the benefit of this family whom He loves. And so after two days, Jesus says it's time to go. But the disciples were a little hesitant. If we had read further in verses 8 and on, they said, well, Uh, Are you sure you want to do this? Because the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, they were trying to stone him to death. He was in the temple and he had said 
that he was God. He said, I am. And they wanted to stone him. So they knew going back there was a dangerous proposition. But Jesus says, guys, it's not my time yet. And we need to go because Lazarus is dead and your faith needs to be strengthened by what you see there. And so they head over to Bethany, just a couple miles south of Jerusalem. Jesus, or John, excuse me, says in verse 17, Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. That's something that he repeats through Martha's voice later in this chapter. I think it's an important point because uh, in rabbinic tradition, there was this idea, it was not a true idea, but it's one they had that, that for three days, the soul would hover over a body that had died. But by the fourth day, as the body was decomposing, that, that soul would depart, realizing there was no chance of reentry. Again, that isn't true, but that was one of the prevailing thoughts. And so by being dead four days, Lazarus would not be considered by the people there mostly dead. He was fully dead. Now, Jesus gets to Bethany. He comes upon quite a scene. There's a large crowd there. Apparently, Mary and Martha and Lazarus were a very prominent family. And many of those in Jerusalem and Bethany had come to this funeral. And they were there consoling Mary and Martha. And when Jesus gets there, Martha's the first one to greet him. We know her. She's the one that is very busy. She sees Jesus. She comes to him. Look at verse 21, their conversation. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. Now, this exchange here between Martha and Jesus is a key conversation. In fact, it's central to the theme of this chapter, really central, a central theme of John's entire gospel. And notice in their conversation, Martha first expresses regret that, that Jesus had not come before Lazarus died, right? If, if you'd been here, you, you could have done something and, and maybe he would not have died. You could have prevented this. And Martha was probably thinking in Jesus' response, he tells her uh, that, that John, or excuse me, Lazarus will rise again. And again, Martha's probably thinking there, you know, many of the people would come and console her and say, you know, one day you will see your brother again. And Mary affirms that she says yes i i know he's not gone forever i I know there'll be a a, a, in the last day a resurrection martha knew her bible she knew passages like job 19 26 and psalm 16 10 and in daniel 12 2 that describe that the, the there will be a bodily resurrection of those who believe trust in god but jesus wasn't talking about that in verse 23 he's saying no no lazarus is going to come back from the dead right now And though Martha affirms Christ is the Messiah, she still didn't quite get what Christ was going to do. And and so she runs off to get her sister Mary. And in verse 32, we see Mary's response as she comes to Jesus. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I want to stop here for a minute just as an aside. When Mary sees Jesus... And comes to him. What does she do? 
Look there in the verse. What does she do? She falls at his feet, right? Now, you remember another time when Jesus was in Mary and Martha's house in Luke chapter 10? And Martha's scurrying about getting stuff ready. Where was Mary? She was sitting listening to Jesus. She was sitting at his feet. Or we're going to find in the next chapter. In fact, John mentioned it here in verse 2 of chapter 11. But in chapter 12, John will give the account when Jesus was in their house again in Bethany. Right before entering Jerusalem. And Mary pours ointment perfume on his feet. And then what does she do? She bends over and wipes his feet with her hair. Where is Mary when Jesus is around? She's at his feet. And you know, it happened again as I read this account, but, but every time I, I read, or most often when I read about Mary, and I think about what was her common posture, always at the feet of Christ, and I ask myself, what is the posture of my heart towards him? Is my priority, like hers, to humbly listen at his instruction and not be distracted? Is, is, is there a complete dependence on him like Mary had when, when she sees him here after her brother died? She rushes up to him and, and goes to his feet. And I imagine her, her clutching those feet and just this, this um, attitude of, of humility and helplessness. And then I ask myself, is my heart one that has total and sacrificial devotion and worship to Christ like we see in Mary in the next chapter as she's wiping his feet with her hair? And I... I just, you know, I thank God for Mary's example that he has given her to us to show us. And as Mary falls at Jesus' feet here in John 11, we read in verse 33, when, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. and said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But but some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from also dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Stop there. So after uh, hearing Mary express her regret, Lord, if, if you had been here, then... My brother would not have died. And as Jesus hears those words, and as he looks upon her, who she is weeping, and those around her were weeping, verse 33 says that he was deeply moved in spirit. And actually the word there has a negative connotation. It it literally means to stir up something. And the idea here was his heart was stirred up, agitated, uh, perhaps even angry. That's sometimes how the word is translated. And then it says Jesus wept. Now, this wasn't the same wailing of despair that was going on around him, but it says Jesus, our Lord, shed tears. And many have have tried to explain what was going on here and exactly what Jesus was feeling. But but frankly, the emotions of God are a deep mystery. And uh, we know that Christ has empathy and compassion, right? Right? You You do know that, right? He does, right? Especially for those who have lost someone dear to them. I mean, we see the example of that in Luke 7 when he comes upon the funeral scene of the widow of Nain and and she is weeping there and it says his heart was moved with compassion and so he raised her son from the dead. So we, we know that he has empathy and care. 
And at the same time here, though, it says Jesus was agitated. Something was bothering him as well. In fact, that same word is repeated in verse 38, where it says Jesus again being deeply moved. And it's a response to what the people said there is, why didn't Jesus keep Lazarus from dying? He healed the blind man. I think what's going on here is not only Christ's empathy for this dear woman Mary and what has happened to her, but also a response that he's having for the people's lack of faith in him. And even the fact they seem to be questioning whether or not he really cared. Twice. They say, Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And then again, the crowd saying, "Why? You know, he, raised, he uh, healed the blind man. Why couldn't he have healed Lazarus? And I think in part... They're expressing here, a, does Jesus really care? Is he really concerned? But Jesus does care, right? Amen? And he can heal, even from death. And so he approaches the tomb. Verse 39, we see, Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now here, again, put yourself in Martha's shoes. This is her brother in there. He's been dead four days. His body's decomposing. Do you think you would want to go and dig up a coffin and look in at a loved one and relive that moment? A lot, of, a lot is made of the King James translation. You know, he stinketh by now. You know, don't go in there. But I think part of that is, I I don't know that I want to see my dead brother or have the crowd see him. But she complies and the stone is removed. It says in verse 41, they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, it's interesting here, Jesus' prayer, right? Because in his prayer, does he ask the Father to raise Lazarus? No, this is a prayer of thanksgiving and gratitude, right? He's already prayed that God would raise Lazarus. And here he's responding in gratitude that the Father has answered his prayer and expresses this desire that that through God's answer, the people would then believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so then we see those famous words, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus spoke and it happened. And it says there that Jesus cried out in a loud voice, not so that Lazarus could hear, but so that the whole crowd could hear. And it is said that uh, of Augustine that he said of this uh, situation, if Jesus had not said Lazarus' name, all would have come out of the graves. (laughs) Indeed, someday Jesus will empty the graves of those who are his, won't he? With a shout from heaven. Well... (laughs) Lazarus emerges from the tomb. I mean, imagine how the people would have responded. Can you imagine that scene? They hear some guy cry out, Lazarus, come forth. And then they see Lazarus walking out of the cave. 
you imagine probably many gasps of, of fear or shrieks of astonishment or, or cries of joy. Imagine the reunion between Lazarus and his sisters. But that's all we can do here is imagine. Because John doesn't tell us. He focuses his attention on the response of the crowd in another way. When Lazarus emerges from the tomb, notice in verse 45, it says this, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Notice here the divided response, which often accompanies Jesus. There's usually two responses. The first group here responds how? What do many of those who were at the funeral do when they see this incredible miracle? They believe in him. They believe in him. They, their hearts are pricked. They recognize, who could do this? Lazarus was dead four days. And there he is. And many of them knew of, G- of Jesus' previous miracles, right? They, they mentioned the, Jesus healing the man born blind. And this was the one that tipped many of them over the edge. And they placed their faith in Christ and affirmed what Martha said earlier, that he is the Messiah, the coming one, the Son of God. And, you know, in, in seeing this miracle, you would think this is kind of like one of those no-duh things, you know? I mean, you'd think the whole crowd would respond that way, right? Because, remember, they knew about Jesus' previous miracle healing the blind man. They had seen many other miracles that Jesus had performed throughout his ministry. Three years Jesus had been ministering. They had been a part many times of Jesus' instruction an instruction that was often described as, as amazing, as astonishing. He speaks with authority. And these people had seen Jesus around and, and seen that this man had never sinned before them, ever. Can you say that about anybody? For three years, the, the miracles, the instruction, the exemplary life, you would think this last miracle with Lazarus coming out of the tomb, oh, that's it, he's got to be God, he's the Messiah. But as we look at the text, we see there are some who did not believe. It says in verse 46 that some of them, meaning some from the, those who were at the funeral, went to the Pharisees. Now, why did they do that? You think they wanted to, hey, Pharisees, there's a, this guy Jesus is the real deal. So they wanted to tell him that or think, you know what, Pharisees, we want to let you know what happened because we're a little bit confused and, and hope that you would give us the instruction and in truth. Why did they go to the Pharisees? They knew Jesus was public enemy number one in their book. They had some nefarious intent. They knew Jesus, or the Pharisees were at odds with Jesus ever since he went public. And so upon hearing what happened, the Pharisees say, we've got to convene a council. Now the word council there is Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a, the governing body of Israel uh, for political and religious, uh, they had political and religious authority. They were made up of the Sadducees and also uh, some of the Pharisees. 
The Sadducees were a group of former high priests or those who were in the high priestly family, kind of an aristocratic group. And the Pharisees were those who would provide instruction to the people. They would be synagogue leaders, uh, scribes who would be interpreting the law, and also those who would give instruction. So this Sanhedrin was composed of about 70 of these guys, the Sadducees and some Pharisees. And the head or the, 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 the chairman of the Sanhedrin group was the high priest. He was the one who was the president, if you will. And after hearing of this significant event, the Pharisees knew that, they needed, that we needed to take action, but they knew that no formal action could be taken apart from the decision and direction of the Sanhedrin. And so they convened a council. They called a meeting, and there was only one item on the agenda that day, right? It was what? What do we do with Jesus? Because right now the, our plans haven't been working so well. That's what that phrase there that they indicate here. What are we doing? Is this idea that the things we've been doing, uh, these plans have been thwarted. Right now, Jesus just raised a man from the dead indisputably in front of many witnesses. And so they say, if we let this guy keep going and doing these miracles, pretty soon everybody's going to believe in him. And you know what's going to happen then? If they all believe that he's the Messiah, there'll be an uprising because they're going to crown him king. And then the Romans won't be too happy about that. And then it's game over for us. We'll lose our place in our nation. The, the word place there is probably a reference to the temple. Because you see, the, these guys knew their history. They remember what happened when the Assyrians came into the ten northern tribes of Israel after King Hosea rebelled and didn't want to pay tribute. We've been talking about that in our series on the prophets. And the Assyrians came in. Wiped them out. Wiped out the capital of Samaria. Took many away into captivity. They remembered Babylon and what happened there when they rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And the king came in. He wiped out Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple. And so they're thinking, we don't want this to happen again. And not only that, they had some personal motivation as well, right? Passover week was just around the corner. So they're envisioning these conversations that could be happening in the crowds as they're there. And Lazarus is walking around and everybody would know, hey, that's the, the resurrected man. That's the walking uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not guy. There he is. You can envision a conversation. Perhaps uh, one guy, uh, he sees Jesus and he says, hey, hey, Joe, there's Lazarus over there. That, that guy who rose from the dead. You serious, Pete? He doesn't look dead to me. Yeah, he was dead four days in the tomb. My cousin Jacob was there. He saw the whole thing. And he, he saw what happened there. So what happened? Well, this prophet named Jesus. Jesus, I heard him. He's in town. He's here right now. Well, yeah. Well, this Jesus, he, he shows up at Lazarus' funeral. He's in the tomb and, and the stones roll away. And then Jesus yells out, uh, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb. And he didn't even stink. It's amazing. The other guy says, really? Yeah. Hey, Pete, you think this guy Jesus could be the Messiah? You get the point, right? That's the very conversation the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin feared. And you know what? Their fears were realized. Because if you read in the next chapter in John 12, that's exactly what was happening. Maybe not that exact conversation, but... Something like it, where they were, they were noticing and looking for Lazarus because they wanted to see the risen man. And even there in John 12, it says that the Pharisees wanted to kill Lazarus to remove the evidence. 
But these religious leaders, instead of believing what was staring them right in the face, believing that that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah, that He is the Son of God, that this is the one who would bring justice, that He would deliver us, that He would free us from the oppression we've been under, that He would restore the nation, just as it had been promised all through the prophecies. But instead of seeing Jesus that way, they, they saw Him as a threat, a threat to their position, to their livelihood, to their religious system, to their security, to their comfort. And so they refused to believe in him because they were more concerned about themselves. And so we see from the crowd two responses. Those who believed in Jesus and those who didn't. And again, this is this is universal. It's universally true for how people will respond to Jesus. They either believe him or they don't. You either accept him or you reject him. You either follow him or flee from him. You either embrace Him or shun Him. You either love Him or hate Him. The Bible gives no third category. There's no neutral ground. There's, there's no, well, I don't hate Jesus. I don't, I don't reject Him. Jesus isn't a bad guy or anything like that. In fact, He's a wonderful teacher. I, I really like to, to read about His teachings, but I, I just don't see the need, a need to follow Him. He's not the only way. I'm not His enemy or anything like that, though. And maybe some of you might be thinking that, or maybe you once thought that, or maybe you know somebody who feels that way. They don't see themselves as Jesus' enemy, but, but they're not a follower of Christ. They don't believe in Him, trust in Him. And to think that you can not follow Jesus, not be His, and yet not be His enemy is, is a fantasy. It's a lie. Jesus Himself said in Luke eleven twenty three. Whoever is not with me is against me. Jesus saw there are only two categories. There's no Switzerland in the middle. There's no neutral ground. To not submit to Jesus is to disbelieve Him. To, to not confess your sins to Him. Place your trust in Him and ask Him for forgiveness. That is to reject Him. And know that we will all stand before Him one day. Jesus is not only the Savior, He's also the judge. And as we stand before Him, there will be two lines only. Those who believe and those who don't. And that's it. The Bible doesn't explain or describe or indicate there's any third line that will be there. And just as Jesus made Himself plainly evident to all those who were at the funeral, no one could deny that miracle. He has made Himself plainly evident to all of us through His creation, through what He has made. Just look around you. This universe did not happen by chance. It was made. And the one who made it, the Creator, also gives further evidence of Himself in that He has written to us a book. He has written to us a book without mistakes or error, a book that communicates to us who God is, what He is like, what He has done. It communicates to us that we've sinned against Him. That He is holy and just and good and righteous and that He will punish sin. This book, this word that He has given us also tells us about the fact that He became a man. The man Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and died so that any who would believe in Him, any who would trust in Him in faith could be delivered from the punishment for sin and hell and have eternal life. 
But that payment, again, is only realized if you believe in him. Just as we see over and over in this chapter and in John's gospel and in the Bible, this word belief, this word to trust in, this word that has this idea of clinging to, just like Mary clinging at his feet. So don't be like the group who who saw this amazing miracle and many others and chose not to believe. Well, let's go back to verse 49. The chairman of the board, the high priest, the Sanhedrin now speaks. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, if you're familiar with the crucifixion story, this name Caiaphas should, should ring a bell. He was uh, the high priest at the time. And, and though the high priest was to be a lifetime position according to Mosaic law, because of its position as the chairman of the Sanhedrin, if you will, the Romans had a keen interest to make sure they wanted to, to have a role in who that guy was going to be. And so they would appoint in Jesus' day the high priest. And so the high priest in the day of Christ was Caiaphas. He was appointed about 12 years earlier than this event in John 11. And he was appointed by Pilate's predecessor. And it was this same Caiaphas who presided over that kangaroo court that had convicted Jesus and sent him over to Pilate to be crucified. You know, and at that trial of Jesus we read about in Matthew 26, you know, this guy Caiaphas was a real piece of work. I mean, he, he uh, had all the while tried to collect and gather false testimony against Jesus. And then when he hears Jesus proclaim himself to be the Son of Man, Caiaphas puts on this act, you know, and tears his robe and says, Blasphemy! But in his heart, he was overjoyed because this man, Jesus, who was his greatest threat, he's now convinced everyone to kill. And, you know, from Caiaphas' response in verse 49, you know, he says to them that all these people were lamenting the situation. What are we going to do with Jesus? And then Caiaphas blurts out, you, you guys are idiots. That's really the thrust when he says, you know nothing at all. That word you is repeated, the pronoun for emphasis. You guys are are knuckleheads. It's right in front of your face what we need to do here. Don't you see it? You've not accounted for it. You've not worked it out. There's an expedient solution to this problem. And then he says these words. It is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now, this guy is crafty because what he does here is he he essentially tries to couch his wicked and selfish motives by making this out to be, you know, it's it's either the nation or this so-called Messiah. The practical solution here is we need to take Jesus out for the good of the people, for the good of our nation. So rather than reveal what's really on his heart, which is to kill this Jesus again, who's a threat to him. He couches these, his, his idea and this righteous and noble idea that one man should die for the nation, right? Why should we let this go on and then all of us be taken out by the Romans? In other words, if Jesus is a threat, it's better to remove him to keep the people from harm. It's like Spock said, right? The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. They stole that line from Caiaphas. Really? I've seen the script. Um, (laughs) Verse 53. Caiaphas accomplished his goal. And that day, the one action item from that meeting 
They made a resolution to kill Jesus. You see, Caiaphas didn't care about what was right, only what was expedient. R.C. Sproul called Caiaphas the king of pragmatists. And many people can fall into that same mentality of pragmatism and expedience today, not worrying or focusing on what is right, but what is expedient, what will make them happy, what will keep them out of trouble, what will give them the least difficulty. And that can be a temptation for us as well. But the minute you compromise and, and do what is expedient, you are headed for decisions that will not only bring you harm, but also those around you. Pilate's decision was an expedient one, right? He was afraid of what the Romans would do if he sided with Jesus. He was afraid of an uprising from the crowds. And he committed and made the, the most evil and wicked decision of anyone in history. And he sentenced the Son of God to die. And he knew he was innocent. But... It was expedient. Don't ever do what is expedient. Always do what is right. And looking back to the Sanhedrin's meeting, and we want to come full circle this morning now, and there's several things that happened in that meeting that are dripping with irony. One of them is the statement Caiaphas made. The first words out of his mouth, he says, you know nothing at all. You guys are idiots. Which is pretty ironic because who's the real moron here? Right? Caiaphas is the high priest. He's the guy of anybody who should know the Messiah when you see him. He's the high priest. He should have been the guy first in line to welcome Christ. He should have been making plans of how he would be the one to, to the Palm Sunday to uh, as Jesus entered Jerusalem. He should have been the first one to greet Christ, right? He's the high priest. He should have been the one calling the people to follow him as Messiah, not planning his murder. And this is the same guy who's calling for Jesus to be killed. So who is really the one who knows nothing at all? And there's a, another irony here in verse 48. That phrase that the, uh, those at this meeting make about, uh, if we let him go on, it's going to be it for our place, the temple, and our nation. We're going to get wiped out by the Romans if we don't do something. And yet what happened in 70 A.D.? They got wiped out by the Romans. The very thing they were fearing actually took place. And remember, John wrote these words in around 90 AD. So this was 20 years after that event. So people first reading this book, and even us today, we know what happened to Israel. There was an uprising. And the Romans completely destroyed the city and decimated the temple. And John, as we read through his gospel, I think he's really demonstrating his view was that their murder of the Messiah was actually what initiated the demise of Israel. In fact, Jesus foretold it, right? And so what they were fearing by this act, actually, they brought about. But beyond these ironies, there's one that's even more profound. And John notes this. He wants to make sure we didn't miss his wink. And so in verse 51, he says this regarding what Caiaphas had just said. He did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. You see, 
Even though Caiaphas had no intention to, when he said those words regarding Jesus, that is it not better that one should die than that the whole nation should not perish? He didn't realize or understand when he was speaking those words that, hey, we need to do something to escape Roman wrath, that the words he said of Jesus' death for the nation would actually allow them to escape eternal wrath. Caiaphas was predicting, again, without knowing it, the heart of the gospel, that Jesus was a substitution for sinners. In his mind, he's thinking, you know, we take Jesus out, and at least, you know, he's thinking, I want him out because I don't, he's a threat, but he convinced the others to think, if we take him out, our nation will be safe, and we won't incur judgment from the Romans. But we know, when he said that, Jesus' death was a way in order for us not to incur God's judgment for our sin, right? It's really amazing. <laughs> That's why he's called a prophet here. The high priest used to be the one back in the day when the Urim and the Thummim, that they would uh, predict or tell God's decision, God's will. Um, so the high priest did have a prophetic role. And here, again, in an ironic way, Caiaphas fulfills that role by predicting Christ's death on behalf of those who have sinned. Prophet Isaiah said of the Messiah this very thing in Isaiah 53. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And many of you know this verse. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see, because of our sin, and, and all of us have sinned, right? Just one or two of you have sinned? You know better, (laughs) right? We all have sinned. And because of our sin against a good and loving and holy and righteous and just and kind and compassionate God, because of that sin, we deserve eternal punishment and separation from Him in hell. That sin is a statement to God, I don't want to be around you. And so God says, okay, for eternity you won't be. We all deserve His punishment. Apart from Jesus, there's no other option. Look through the Bible. Study it. There's no purgatory. There's no neutral holding tank. There's no place of, of, of uh, uh, being in a neutral position. It's heaven or hell. That's it. There's no annihilation. When you die, you don't cease to exist. The Bible's very clear on this. After, uh, it is pointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. But the reason that life has purpose and meaning, the, the reason that when we came this morning, we heard joyful singing rather than cries of lament, the reason that, that we can have hope and not despair is because we don't have to suffer God's judgment. <laughs> we don't have to suffer God's judgment. I should hear, at least hear some amens on that one. Right? That was... The whole point here, Caiaphas said it's a point, you know, it's, it's uh, expedient for one to die for the nation. And God's saying, that's right. Because if there isn't anyone who dies for sinners, there's no payment for sin. But in Jesus, if you confess your sin and turn to him in faith, then, as we're going to see in a moment, you'll have eternal life. In fact, look back with me at that conversation that Jesus And Martha had, back in verse 25, 
Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. It is so important we understand and grasp what Jesus has said here. It is so important. He says a couple of things about himself. I think they're complementary, but they're distinct. He says first, I am the resurrection. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And given the context of John 11, what he's talking about here is that if anyone who is his, anyone who believes in him, if they die, if they physically die, who is going to raise them up in the last day? Jesus, right? By his power, he will raise up those who are his. So he says there, he who believes in me shall live even if he dies. That's what he meant. You will not suffer an eternal spiritual death apart from God in hell. But you will be raised up by the power of Christ. And then he says, I am the life. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now again, this is one of those statements that Jesus gives that, wait a minute. First you say that, that a person will 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 not you know if they die then they will live and then here you're saying they shall never die now which is it do we die or not but see jesus often interchanged the physical and the spiritual didn't he because he knew everybody dies at least up until his return all of us are going to suffer physical death everyone will jesus knew that he wasn't saying that the one who believes in him wouldn't suffer physical death what he's saying here is the spiritual life it's experienced on both sides of the grave he's talking here about eternal life i am the life and what he's saying here just as he said in john six thirty-five, i am the bread of life he who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst he's not talking here only about your experience in the future after you die. He's also talking about your experience right now. Eternal life isn't just the equivalent of saying I'm going to heaven in the future. In John 17, 3, Jesus clearly defines eternal life when he says that it is to know him and the one who he sent. So eternal life isn't living forever. The focus is eternal life is knowing Jesus forever. And that knowledge doesn't just start after you die, does it? If you're His, it starts when you believe in Him. If you're a child of God now, you have eternal life right now. You are alive. And you will never die. Amen. And that's what He was referring to here. It's not about going to heaven. It's about knowing Jesus. And when he said in John 3, 16, whosoever believes in me shall have eternal life, he wasn't saying whosoever believes in me is going to go to heaven, though that's part of the deal. What he's saying is whoever believes in me will have life in me. We will have sweet, unbroken fellowship with one another. And you know, life, life isn't worth living without Christ. You know, in fact, this life is really no life. It's just an existence. When you think about it, really, it's just an existence. 
And that's why Jesus is saying here, I came to give life, true life, real life. He says, I, I am the life and I want to give it to you. And I want to give it abundantly so that you may live, truly live. I created you to live in me. I am the resurrection and the life. But that life is only for those who believe in him. Only for those who admit they are a sinner and confess that sin to him and seek his forgiveness. Only for those who accept that only Christ's death is a sufficient payment for sin. That there's no other way. The Bible offers no other way. Only the death of a sinless man, the Son of God, is enough to pay for your sin and mine. Now, some may ask, well, okay, how do I know this is true? How can I be sure Jesus is the resurrection and the life, as he says here? Well, the first reason is, what happened just a few moments after he made that claim? What happened? A dead man came out of a tomb. And then what happened just a couple of months after that? Jesus came out of a tomb. That's how you know this is true. Because God raised him from the dead. That's why the resurrection is such a big deal. Because it shows God's approval for Jesus' sacrifice. And it affirms every statement Jesus made about himself. So you can have 100% confidence. Jesus is the life. If you believe. If you believe. Well, I don't know if the Bible's true or not. It's true. Read it. God will prove himself to you. Read it. Spend time in it. Ask genuine questions. I was sharing with somebody not long ago, and, and you know, he, he had some very direct and abrupt questions, but he was very transparent, and I so appreciated that. He said, you know, I, I don't agree with you. And then he would tell me why, and so we would talk. You need to do that. Be honest with God. If you have questions, go to him. And then he's already given the answers. Go read it. God's not hiding anything. Come to the book. Come to the book of John. Start in chapter 1. Travel through that. Jesus is the Savior. He's the only Savior. He is Lord. His word says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God did raise him from the dead. You too will be saved to eternal life, a life which will happen the very moment of salvation. The Bible says that someday there will be a shout from heaven and that all the dead in Christ will rise. The question is, in that day, Will you be one that that hears that voice and comes out of the tomb? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for this story. Um, It's not made up. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. (laughs) It happened. You raised a man from the dead to validate what you had said, that you are the resurrection and the life. I want to give any, anyone here now just a moment of silence to talk to God, to be honest with Him. And genuinely ask yourself if you have truly 
Turn from your sin and trust it in Christ. Is Jesus truly your Lord? Is He your life? Take this moment. Don't be distracted by anything else. And just be honest. Be real right now in the silence between you and God. You may not have another chance to do that. Jesus is your life, then today is a day to rejoice in that. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful and thankful that you came. Thank you, Father, you raised him from the dead that that proves all that that Jesus said and did is true and that you accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, I just pray that none would leave this room without considering where they are truly at with you and that you would open the eyes of any that are closed or maybe there are some here, Lord, that just have been distant from you these days and have not experienced that life that you promise and freely give and there's some sin in their life that they just aren't dealing with. I pray, God, you would bring them to repentance, that they would be honest with themselves and with you. Thank you, God, for the eternal fellowship you offer us through your Son that we can experience and taste now. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.